Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Five Questions podcast. We've got a good one for you today with five questions that are very, very different, but really interesting. At least they're interesting to me. Thanks for watching. And if you have a question that you would like answered on this podcast, just let me know at pastoreddyfree.org. A lot of you have sent in questions already. I love that. Some of those I'm just replying to an email because they're very specific or personal, but a lot of them will end up here so that other people can listen and weigh in and, and see what you think. Feel free to like and subscribe on YouTube or uh, follow you know, on whatever podcast app that you use. Uh, you can also give a comment on YouTube if you want to. And if it's a question or a follow-up, then I'll, I'll try to answer that there because I do get notified about all of those. But thanks so much for watching. I, I hope that you're enjoying this and, and that you're getting something out of it. And maybe occasionally you'll find a question that you can send to someone who's been wondering about that very issue. Well, let me give you an overview of what we'll talk about today because it is a lot of stuff. In fact, I, I wonder if I should rename this the Two Questions Podcast or something because they're getting kind of long, but uh, we'll try to shorten that up in the future. This, this one may be a little bit longer still. Here's what we're going to talk about. Uh, the first question was, why is it so hard to find a good sermon or Bible study on Mary, the mother of Jesus? So that's a great question that came in. Another question had to do a little bit with the movie Nefarious and mostly about how to talk with people who don't believe in God about the issue of evil in the world. So I'll, I'll share a couple things about that. Then there's the question, if I was baptized as an infant, do I need to be baptized again? And fourth question is, should Christians have backup food and supplies? And is that not trusting in God when they do that? And then finally, a question that came up just after my message this week on the Old Covenant and the New Covenant about how some pastors will point to Matthew 5.17 and say that there are still at least some or all of the Mosaic law elements that we need to follow as Christians today, in particular when it comes to laws about same-sex activity and homosexuality. So if we don't point back to the book of Leviticus and we don't follow some parts of the old law, then then where do we where do we look to for guidance on issues of sexual morality? So that is what we're going to talk about today. Let's dive right into it with the first question, which is why is it so hard to find a good sermon or Bible study on Mary, the mother of Jesus? And I don't know for sure, but my guess on this one is that evangelical Christians probably place less emphasis on Mary, partly because of how much emphasis Roman Catholics place on Mary. Roman Catholics elevate Mary to a level that is way beyond what scripture actually says. They give her an ongoing role in heaven as a mediator between God and people, which, which is actually directly opposed to scripture. The Bible says that only Jesus is our mediator, but the Holy, and of course, the Holy Spirit is given to us uh, to pray on our behalf to God. Um, but that's all part of, of God. I mean, that's the Holy Spirit. That's Jesus. That's God the Father. We have a direct connection with them. But uh, in the Roman Catholic Church, Mary is given this go-between role between us and Jesus, us and God. And she's even often made the object of worship to the point of idolatry and in some ways treated almost like a God that can hear your prayers and advocate for us to Jesus uh, as if somehow she's she's got some divine ability to, to listen to your prayers. And the Bible doesn't say anything like that. In the Bible, Mary is a wonderful woman of faith. She's not perfect. She's a sinner like any other human, but she is a believer in God and ultimately in Jesus as the son of God. So Mary is a great example of faith, but not in any way to be elevated to a position of sacredness or almost deification sometimes. Notice what the apostles do when people try to treat them like gods 
and worship them. They tear their clothes and they do whatever they can to stop people from treating them that way. And so I think Mary would be disgusted and horrified to see how the enemy has deceived people into thinking that she is somehow a conduit for prayer and an object for worship. Now, I want to be clear that I'm not saying all Catholics believe this, but I know many that do. And it is where the official teaching of the Roman Catholic Church tends to lead. So I think because of that, evangelical Christians often spend less time on Mary than than maybe even they should because she's so misused in the Roman Catholic Church. And now we certainly should not ignore Mary. She's an amazing woman of faith. Scripture presents her as a role model and an example for us to follow in that way. But then there's another reason why I think Mary is less of a focus for us evangelicals, and that is that her story is actually relatively small and insignificant compared to what it is immediately up against. Juxtaposed to the story of Mary is the story of Jesus. So we don't focus on Mary too much for the same reason we don't focus on Joseph or Zechariah or Simeon too much. It's all just a prelude to the stories about Jesus, which, let's be honest, are far more important and far more meaningful to our faith. And that's not to take away from Mary or those other great examples of the faith. But if you are choosing a hundred years from now about whether to tell someone the story of Adam Bowers or the story of Jesus, I hope you pick the story of Jesus. And so I think Mary and Joseph and Zechariah and Simeon and all these others would say, yes, focus on Jesus not on me. You know, maybe share my story every now and then, but let's really focus on Jesus most. I think that's what happens. Um, and, And those other characters in the Bible, they're really only there to point us to Jesus. That's the whole point of them. So we can learn from them and they're good to talk about sometimes, but certainly they shouldn't be a focal point for us anywhere near the level of Jesus. Now, at First Free Church, we've done some messages on Mary and Joseph and Zechariah and Simeon and other lesser-known figures precisely because they are often overlooked and there are great things we can learn from their stories. And if you want to, you can find those messages at efree.org slash messages. Look specifically for the series called The Thrill of Hope from 2019 and another one called The Arrival from 2021. And you will find messages on Mary and Zechariah and Simeon and the shepherds and so on there. The Mary messages, if you're interested, are called Belief of Hope in the Thrill of Hope and The Parents in the Arrival series. And that touches on Mary and Joseph, but it has a lot on Mary. Okay, question number two. We watched Nefarious recently and wondered how to talk with people who don't believe in God about the existence of evil in the world. What questions could we ask? I'm glad you watched the movie Nefarious. I really enjoyed that movie. And I think it's the best depiction today of how demonic activity looks in a modern Western context. The strategies are different here than in other parts of the world. And I think that movie captures it really well. I have engaged with people about the problem of evil in the world many times, And if you're asking specifically about just the realities of evil and and what that means to our faith, here are a few questions that I would ask to try to take that conversation to a deeper level. For instance, what do you think about the evil that is in the world? Is it possible that there's something more strategic and coordinated behind it? Another one would be, how can we determine what is evil if there is no ultimate source of morality? Isn't it just up to the masses to decide what is evil and what isn't? So if the majority of people feel that hurting another group for no reason is acceptable, 
or a reason that seems very selfish and self-centered, if that's acceptable to the majority, doesn't that make it moral and not evil? Who gets to decide what is moral and, and what is evil? And the third line of questioning would be, when does an act that would otherwise be evil become acceptable? For instance, when is it okay to kill a person? When they are threatening to kill someone else or a bunch of other people? But who is to say that the second killing was justified and not the first, if there's no higher moral standard? I mean, the, the first killing, the, an individual that wants to kill someone else has a reason why they want to do that, most likely. It may not be a good reason in our, in our ideals, but who gets to decide that? And then deciding that you're going to kill that person because they're going to kill other people, what makes that any better? Both of you have a reason for it. Who gets to decide that one reason is moral and one reason is evil? So those are just some questions that help to dig into the issue of the need for a moral lawgiver, the need for a higher moral standard than what the world would have us believe, that it really is just ultimately up to the culture and the masses, what the majority decides. If the, if the majority decides to do something horrible and abhorrent, is it not horrible anymore if the majority decide to do that? Now, if you're looking for a book that addresses the problem of evil in the world when it comes to having a loving God, the best one that I know of is called God Forsaken by Dinesh D'Souza. Now, I don't remember who this was. So if, if you're listening or watching this, I'm not trying to single anyone out for this, but someone really did not like the fact that I brought up this book by Dinesh D'Souza in the past because there are some actions that he has taken that they don't like. I don't remember who it was. I don't remember the details, but all I can say is the book is really good. And I'm recommending the book on the problem of evil called God Forsaken, Not Every Aspect of the Author's Life. And that's going to be the case a lot of times. There are a lot of resources out there that are really good. And then if you dig into the author's life, there may be things that you don't like. For instance, there's this amazing book on evangelism called Just Walk Across the Room. Wonderful book full of great content and some really a true but paradigm shifting thoughts about evangelism. It's written by a guy named Bill Hybels. Not a great example of pastoral ministry. And if you know what's happened with him in recent years, you know why. But the book is still great. One of my mentors has said recently that we keep elevating Christian leaders as if they are perfect representations of the faith, and then we're shocked to find out that they have feet of clay just like us. And it doesn't mean that everything they've ever done is worthless. Peter, Paul, David, Noah, Moses, and everyone else in the Bible except Jesus had some big blunders too, and thankfully we don't reject everything they wrote because of it. So, the resource I would recommend is God Forsaken by Dinesh D'Souza. I can't speak for anything else he's done, but that book is the best one I have read on understanding how there can be evil in the world, even though we have a loving and just and all-powerful God. Question number three, I was baptized as an infant. Should I get baptized again? This is a question I get probably once every two months, especially in the St. Louis area. As you can imagine, there's a heavy Catholic uh, presence um, and, and even other, other groups in there like Lutherans where this is a, a major question. Any, any church uh, or group that would practice infant baptism is going to have people that maybe end up realizing that there's, there's more to what the Bible teaches than maybe what they grew up with, but they're not sure whether that means they're baptism as a child that their parents put them through was a valid baptism when it comes to Jesus' command to be baptized. So should I get baptized again if I was baptized as an infant? And my answer is yes, but I'm not going to force you under. 
So baptism in the Bible is specifically for believers. And it is a command for believers. If you are sprinkled or poured or dunked as an infant, I don't think anybody dunks as an infant, probably just sprinkled or poured. Maybe somebody does. But if if you had infant baptism, that was not biblical baptism. That did not fulfill the command by Jesus to be baptized. I know some people like to think that it still counts. uh, And for them personally, they feel like, well, that should count for me. It, It doesn't. Just biblically speaking, it does not count. That is not the same thing. Um, It may have been a testimony of your parents' faith, but it was not a testimony of your faith. And that is the whole point behind baptism. It's like showing up for dinner and your date says, hey, you smell. And you're like, well, but my parents washed me when I was a kid. And that's nice, but it's irrelevant to the current conversation. It has absolutely nothing to do with biblical baptism. Infant baptism has nothing to do with biblical baptism. Baptism is an act of obedience to the command of Jesus in response to our personal faith, not our parents' faith. So unless you had faith in Jesus personally before you were baptized as an infant, it's not biblical baptism and it's not following the commands of Jesus. Now, I know some parents, especially who grew up with a tradition of infant baptism, like the idea of practicing infant baptism. This will happen in in a lot of Methodist churches, for instance, where they don't necessarily think it has a saving effect. They don't even necessarily think that it makes the child part of a covenant community, which is kind of an interesting theological nuance that was added that doesn't really show up in scripture. But they still view it as a part of dedicating that child. And there's nothing technically wrong with that other than the confusion that it creates, either for that child or for the other people who are watching who may be thinking, oh, infant baptism, that has some saving effect, some aspect of giving God's grace to that child. No, that is not in scripture. Um, There's just no reason to believe that. So technically speaking, is it wrong to have an infant baptism as a dedication, a sprinkling of water? No, it's not wrong. It is very confusing. And it certainly is not what the Bible talks about when it talks about baptism. I mentioned this a couple episodes ago, but there's this guy uh, in the early church named Tertullian. He was a church leader. He wrote about infant baptism, and he specifically said that it's dangerous to baptize your children as infants uh, because you might lead them astray in thinking that they that that actually had some saving effect on them and that it's not just faith in Christ. So I'm not going to police this with people. This is between you and God. I trust that his Holy Spirit will convict you as needed. Praise God, he doesn't convict us for everything all at once. When you become a believer, there is this huge list of things that God could start convicting you on. And he usually just picks one or two and says, let's work on this thing. It's a journey. It's a spiritual journey of faith. I do think that at some point, you should follow Jesus' command to be baptized as a believer. But I don't look down on anyone because they haven't done that yet. God's still working on me with different things in my life too. Uh, I just think that, yes, at some point, that is something you should be obedient to Christ in, is being baptized. Okay, question number four. Should Christians have a reserve of food and basic supplies? And is that not trusting in God? So faith in God doesn't mean being unprepared. We can both trust in God and be ready for disaster. And that is a biblical principle. In fact, it would be foolish to not use the resources that God has given us to be prepared. It would be foolish, for instance, to expect that we can just be wasteful, spend and use everything we have, and that God will actually reward us for that later when hard times come. And the Bible actually talks about this in Proverbs 6. We read this, it says, take a lesson from the ants, you lazy bones, and learn from their ways and become wise. 
Though they have no prince or governor or ruler to make them work, they labor hard all summer gathering food for the winter. And then in Proverbs 21, it says, the wise have wealth and luxury, but fools spend whatever they get. And literally that last verse says that wise people store up food and resources, but foolish people spend it all. Some people have thought that the story of the rich man with the barns in the New Testament that Jesus tells is evidence that we should not save up things for the future. We should just live with whatever we have today and trust God with whatever we're going to need in the future. But Jesus told that story not to say that we should not have extra resources, but to point out that this man's faith was in all of his extra resources. He did not have faith in God. That's why he was foolish. He had faith in all of his stuff. You can both be wise and store up for the future and have faith in God to provide and even provide through those things that he's given you and blessed you with ahead of time to store up for the future. So that would be the principle I would take away from Proverbs. Now, also, you can look at how God used Joseph to prepare for the disaster in the Middle East by storing up food, not only so that he not so he could become wealthy, not at all, but so that he and his family could be saved and many other families could be saved and survive those hard times that were ahead for them. So I think that the biblical principle is to be prepared for disasters. I am not a prepper expert at all. Um, I know there are some prepper experts in our church and some of them have given me advice at different times that's been very, very helpful. I think it is wise to have a few months worth of long-term food storage ready for you and your family. Ideally, the food storage that will last you, you know, a couple of decades or more. And also, I think it's probably best for it not to be the pre-made meal stuff, but kind of the the bare, the basic elements of food preparation that you can use, you know, flour and oats and beans and rice and things like that to make meals from um, as a as a storage up for the future, just in case. There is actually a place you can go to get those resources in the St. Louis area. It's called the Home Storage Center. It's from the Mormon Church, but they're, they're really big into this stuff uh, for their own theological reasons. But a side benefit of this is they have lots of these 30-year-long storage options for food that can be just a really wise thing to have on hand in case you need it. You also want some kind of heat source, like a propane heater that can be used safely indoors. That can be good. Um, a generator is a good thing to have, maybe a solar generator so that you can charge it using solar panels as well. There are lots of places you can look online and on YouTube to get more information on that. And, and you just have to decide what makes sense for you. For me, um, it's something that I've had enough experience with in the past, either in other countries or even in this country, that I find it wise to be prepared for some of these things. So I've always had a generator and certain emergency items on hand that I've needed, both for personal safety and for um, just basic survival and, and living. And at times we've had to use them. Uh, in fact, every time I go camping, for me, that's an opportunity to test out my emergency gear and just make sure that, that we stay ready and have the things that we need. But one time back in Virginia, we had an unexpected storm come through and it knocked out power for two weeks. When you lose power, for, when a whole community loses power for two weeks, crazy stuff happens. Stores go empty within 48 hours and they don't get restocked for a long time. Stoplights don't work. Emergency services are overloaded. People break into homes and businesses and steal stuff left and right. It does not take long at all for things to get kind of crazy and for resources to be gone when you are just, just out of power. That's all that happened. But if that goes on for a few days, crazy stuff can happen. So... Um, thankfully, at the time, the place that I worked 
got power back relatively quickly. So that helped us to be able to go use that during the day. But still for two weeks, every every night and whenever I wasn't working, we're at a house without power. So I had a generator outside and I was able to run power in and we had all the things we needed at that point. Thankfully, we did have enough food, um, but I could have seen a scenario where it would have gotten much worse very quickly. Oh, and by the way, that storm also uh, devastated a bunch of houses. I mean, there was a house just a few houses down from us that was literally cut in half by a tree. So you compile enough of these kind of disasters. It's not hard to see a time where you might want to have some extra food on hand and a generator and, and other things like that if you're able to do that. And I think that if everyone in our church was ready and prepared with, with wisdom, like Proverbs says, for difficult times, that that would not only provide for their families, but it would also be able to provide for other people, for neighbors as an act of love. And it would demonstrate the love of Christ to be ready in that way and able to help people in that kind of a scenario. I know there's a whole rabbit trail we could go down with regard to this stuff, and that's not what this is about. But the, to the question of, is it wrong for Christians to be prepared for disasters by having some stores of food and resources and supplies? No, I don't, I don't think it's wrong. I actually think it's wise. Okay, here's the last question. And this one just came up yesterday, so it's very fresh. I'm going to paraphrase it a, a little bit. I've heard pastors use Matthew 5.17 to support some continuation of the Mosaic law, especially when it comes to homosexuality. What do you think about that? So last Sunday, I preached on the New Covenant and the Old Covenant. And there are some Christians who think that Christians today are still responsible to follow some or all of the Old Covenant. And I quoted a lot of scripture this week that I think makes it very clear that we are not in any way bound by the Old Covenant. That was a contract between the people of Israel back then and God. It was never a contract with us who came to faith in Christ. We are under the new covenant, which includes a lot of the same principles as the old, but we don't follow them because they're in the old. We follow them because we're they're in the new. A great example of this that I didn't have time to go into on Sunday. There are so many things I didn't have time to go into on Sunday. But one example is the Sabbath days. I touched on it, but here's a little bit more. Um, this is one of the reasons why, by the way, I don't support putting statues of the Ten Commandments up anywhere. One of the Ten Commandments is to keep the Sabbath days. But in Colossians 2, Paul says not to let anyone condemn you for not keeping the Sabbath days or any other special days from the Old Covenant. So we have clear instructions here not to require one of the Ten Commandments. So does that mean that it's just that one that doesn't apply and all the other nine still apply? What do we do with that? How do we how do we think about some of the Ten Commandments applying and some of them not? Doesn't that seem inconsistent in our faith? And, and yeah, that would be inconsistent. So do we apply the other nine? Yes and no. See, the other nine still apply, not because they're in the Old Covenant, but because they are in the New Covenant. We don't follow the other nine because they're in the Ten Commandments, the Ten Commandments are part of a covenant that is not binding on us and was not given to us. We'd still follow those principles, though, because they are repeated in the New Covenant. So that's just one example. Um, but then someone asked this question, which I get at least uh, once a year, and that is, what about when Jesus said, I have not come to abolish the law? That's in Matthew 5.17. Let me just read that to you. Matthew 5.17, Jesus says, don't misunderstand why I have come. I did not come to abolish the law of Moses 
or the writings of the prophets. No, I came to accomplish their purpose. I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not even the smallest detail of God's law will disappear until its purpose is achieved. The way Jesus is saying this is very interesting. It's it's very intentional. The question at hand is, does the Mosaic law still apply to us? Is it still binding on us in, in any way? And specifically, this person was wondering about regulations concerning same-sex activity in the book of Leviticus. So that's part of the Old Covenant. And if that's not binding anymore, then is there any reason same-sex activity is still wrong? Was that just a command for that time, like not eating bacon? So uh, let's tackle the first part first. Matthew 5. Jesus in Matthew 5 is giving his new disciples their orientation speech. So this is the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 through 7. He's introducing to them the requirements of the new covenant. He's he's teaching them things that that are related to things they know, but but new concepts. And they go farther and they speak to the heart and the motivations more than anything in the old covenant. And he doesn't want them to walk away with the impression, based on his teaching, that the old covenant was bad or useless or just done away with, that we just ignore the old covenant. That's not what he's saying. He is saying that he's fulfilling and accomplishing the purpose of the Old Covenant, not that he's completely getting rid of it. Paul later teaches us how the Old Covenant was good, and it pointed people to the need for a Savior. And there are parts of the Old Covenant that look forward to a future Messiah who will do what the Old Covenant could not. So Jesus is saying, I'm not here to eliminate the Old Covenant like it was pointless. I'm here to fulfill the Old Covenant. By his death and resurrection, he would do exactly what the old covenant required, but any other human could not do. In fact, Jesus would be the first and only person to ever actually keep the old covenant. And he did it on behalf of you and me because we cannot keep the old covenant. So Jesus was actually living out the old covenant and fulfilling it for us, not destroying it. See the difference? I think what Jesus is saying here is not that, well, you still have to keep certain parts of the Mosaic law. I think what he's saying is, I'm not wiping it out. I'm living it out. I am living out the old covenant. I am the only one who can actually live the old covenant and do that for you and then die as a sacrifice, having kept it perfectly. And so I'm fulfilling. I'm not getting rid of it. I'm fulfilling. I'm completing it. I'm I'm fulfilling the terms of that contract in a way that you never could. And by the way, God's law, God's law never goes away. And so everything Jesus is teaching them in the new covenant in Matthew 5 through 7 and the rest of his teaching and everything the apostles teach after this is all a a carrying forward of the teaching of Jesus Christ through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. All of that is a part of God's law. It's an application of God's law. So there is that distinction uh, between the different types of law in the Bible And even if you take a different interpretation of what Jesus is saying here about the law of Moses, you still have to deal with all the other verses in the New Testament that make it so clear that the law of Moses is no longer binding. Like Paul saying he doesn't follow unless it's to reach the Jews. And Paul calling Peter out and saying, hey, Peter, you don't follow the old covenant. You don't follow the old law. Why are you expecting the Gentiles to follow some of that? So there's just no way in my view that we can read everything the Bible says about the law of Moses and conclude that it's still binding on us today. And if we did, we would then have to carve it up into different parts and say, well, here's the part we follow and here's the part we don't follow, which the Bible says nothing about that. And then you run into the issue of being called a hypocrite because you're following this regulation and not that regulation. And so that's a factor in who gets to decide. And it certainly seems like 
we just look at our life now and say, which parts of the old covenant do we want to follow and which parts do we not want to follow because we just don't like that. Like we, we like getting tattoos and we like eating bacon and we like wearing clothes with different types of fabric in them. So we're not going to follow those regulations. Like who gets to decide what is what? So to me, that's just a very inconsistent position. And I just don't think it's necessary. I don't think that it is biblical. But here's the question they really wanted to ask. If the law against same-sex activity was an old covenant law, then is that no longer part of the new covenant? Can we not look to Leviticus 18 and Leviticus 20, which are the places that the Old Testament talks about same-sex activity, for our moral guidance on this issue? So let me just read those passages to you, and we'll get into this a little bit here. Leviticus 18, 22 says, Do not practice homosexuality. Having sex with another man as with a woman, it is a detestable sin. And then Leviticus 20 says, if a man practices homosexuality, having sex with another man as with a woman, both men have committed a detestable act. They must both be put to death for they are guilty of a capital offense. What we learn from these verses is that is, is what God demanded under the old covenant. And it shows his attitude towards same-sex activity under the old covenant. These laws, they're not binding on us today uh, in Leviticus. But the passage doesn't just give the laws. It also gives us teaching on God's rationale for those laws. And so I don't know that we can say that rationale has necessarily changed. Most of the laws that are given in the Old Covenant just give you the law and that's it. Very few times does it actually stop and say, These are, this is detestable to God. Um, this is the regulation and here's why I'm giving you the regulation because God himself detests this. That, that takes it to a different level. It still doesn't mean that the Levitical law applies to us or that I would use this as our contract for why we know this activity is wrong, but it certainly says something about, about God. It teaches us something about him to even see that in the old covenant law. Now, elsewhere in that in those same chapters in Leviticus, Moses says that these acts and many other sexual perversions were what the people of Egypt and the people of Canaan did. And he goes on and on about them being detestable to God. So it wasn't just a regulation to show devotion. These actions were actually detestable to God. Still not a binding regulation on us, us um, but detestable to God, at least in that, in that old covenant. Fast forward one more chapter. I think it's chapter 21. And there are commands about requiring you to pay your employees on the same day that they worked. So you can't wait two weeks for payday. No, you got to pay them exactly the same day that they work. Is that a regulation we need to follow? Um, there's the regulation about not wearing clothing with two kinds of fabric. There's a regulation about not planting a field with two different kinds of seed next to each other. There are regulations about not trimming your beard or trimming the hair on the sides of your head and letting those grow long. There are regulations about not getting tattoos. There are regulations about not keeping the Sabbath. So there we have an example of one where Paul specifically later says, don't let anyone condemn you for not keeping the Sabbath. And yet here in Leviticus, right next to these passages about sexual activities that are immoral, it says you make sure you keep the Sabbath. So um, my advice to anyone who wants to point to Leviticus as your moral grounding against same-sex attraction or same-sex activity rather, is to start following all those other laws too. Before you try to tell someone that, oh, See, you can't do this because Leviticus says so. You better make sure you're following everything else Leviticus says. But here's the thing. We don't need to pull out the old contract to know whether God wants us to engage in same-sex activity because it's spelled out in the new contract as well. So let me show you three places in the New Testament where this is made very, very clear. Romans chapter 1, verse 26 
says, That is why God abandoned them to their shameful desires. Even the women turned against the natural way to have sex and instead indulged in sex with each other. And the men, instead of having normal sexual relations with women, burned with lust for each other. Men did shameful things with other men. And as a result of this sin, they suffered within themselves the penalty they deserve. That's Romans 1, 26 and 27. Then 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11. Don't you realize that those who do wrong will not inherit the kingdom of God. Don't fool yourselves. Those who indulge in sexual sin or worship idols or commit adultery or are male prostitutes or practice homosexuality or are thieves or greedy people or drunkards or are abusive or cheat people, none of those will inherit the kingdom of God. Some of you were once like that, but you were cleansed. You were made holy. You were made right with God by calling on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the spirit of our God. And then 1 Timothy 1, 9 through 10 says, For the law was not intended for people who do what is right. It is for people who are lawless and rebellious, who are ungodly and sinful, who consider nothing sacred and defile what is holy, who kill their father or mother or commit other murders. The law is for people who are sexually immoral or who practice homosexuality or are slave traders, liars, promise breakers, or who do anything else that contradicts the wholesome teaching. So this is a principle when it comes to same-sex activity or homosexuality, that is part of God's law, and it shows up in both the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. If you're showing someone that same-sex activity is wrong in God's eyes, show them the New Covenant. In Romans 1 and 1 uh, 1 Corinthians and 1 Timothy, you can still show the consistency that's in the Old Covenant as well, but it's the New Covenant that is meant for us today. And one last thing on that, be loving be gracious. Understand that we are all sinners. Even if we sin in different ways, don't try to be someone else's Holy Spirit. Show the truth with grace and love and let God do his work. I should tell you that in a couple of months, we are going to have a whole series called Created to Connect, God's Design for Gender and Sexuality, where we are going to talk about this and and a bunch of other issues that have to do with how God designed us to be intimate and connect with people and where the boundaries are that he designed for us as well. And so we're going to cover this in more detail then in September and October. So I would encourage you to stick that on your calendar. Make sure you join us for that. It's going to be, I think, about eight weeks of just really diving into these topics. And I hope it's going to help give us a lot of clarity. But If you want a sneak peek, let me give you a few resources that you could go ahead and watch and read over the summer to prepare for that. One of them is a series on Right Now Media. And Right Now Media is kind of like a Christian version of Netflix where there are all these great Christian videos and series that you can watch. We actually pay for it as a church to provide a subscription to everyone in our church. So you can find that on our website. I think it's just efree.org slash rightnowmedia. If you go there, sign up for an account, it'll be free for you because again, the church pays for it. You can find a series called Grace and Truth. And that series on grace and truth is a good primer, uh, which will actually go into every verse in the Bible that talks about homosexuality and uh, give you a very loving and gracious approach to understanding how to have uh, good relationships with people who may struggle in this area and deal with same-sex attraction. Then there are a couple of books I would recommend to you, which I've recommended to a lot of people. So I know many people in our church, probably some of you watching this have already read these, but one of them is People to be Loved and the other one is called Embodied. Both of those are books by a guy named Preston Sprinkle. Great last name. I would encourage you to go 
read those books and uh, and see what you think about what he has to say because that a lot of that is content that will make its way into our series in September and October and it'll give you a good primer for that. Okay, that's all the time we have for today. Thanks for making it all the way to the end. If you have questions that you'd like to see on a future episode of the Five Questions Podcast, just send them to me at pastor at efree.org. Okay, God bless.